What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And in for Josh Larson this week, I'm Michael Phillips. So, Adam, you want to tell me why you really had me in this week? This thing, it's going to follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Back in the car. Huh, I wondered why you insisted on driving me over here. Let's not talk about it, Michael. The new indie horror film It Follows has been getting good buzz for its inventive handling of familiar material, sex, teens, and supernatural killers. Our review plus our list of the top five 21st century horror movies. Also, my band, Sex, Teens, and Supernatural Killers, will be playing a set later. <laughs> Love so, it. Okay. And film spotting madness continues and much more. Now, don't you pass it on to A.O. Scott, Michael. Just ahead on film spotting. Spotting is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash film. And a bit later in the show, I'll have a few audiobook recommendations for you to potentially download. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Michael, every week they have brand new selections to see over at Mubi what is available this week. Right now there's a new series dedicated to the films of French fantasist Jean Rollin, who is an underrated genius of 1970s sexy dreamscapes of horror and sensuality. These provide opulent, perverse and inspired pleasure some may call guilty but Mubi calls brilliant and there's a Tilda Swinton double feature we have her very first film an inspired biopic of the painter Caravaggio directed by a key collaborator with the actress British maverick Derek Jarman we're also showing the beguiling I Am Love a lavish melodrama elegantly twisted through an elegant fractured style it really is a good film I Am Love we can both recommend and I have not seen Caravaggio but I'm into biopics about painters and Derek Jarman fascinating filmmaker so that's one I need to see thanks to Mubi every day Mubi's curators introduce a new title you then have 30 days to watch it that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for just $4.99 a month you can also use their mobile apps to download Load films and watch them offline. Film spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com/slash/filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I.com/slash/filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. My guest this week, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Michael, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh no, Adam. It's my pleasure. Well, we'll see, because you did agree to record this week's show in an old abandoned orphanage. <laughs> I thought it might help get us in the mood. You're, you're acclimating yourself well. We are getting in the mood for this week's top five 21st century horror movies. The first 15 years of this new millennium have produced some memorable ones, some of which I've actually seen, Michael. So that bodes well for the top five list. And speaking of terror, you're filling in for Josh this week, Michael, in part because he and his wife agreed to chaperone a junior high field trip. Hmm. 
to an abandoned orphanage. It, it was might be. such a mistake. Now that sounds pretty horrifying, but yeah, yeah. Josh is a brave, brave man. <laughs> also on the show, the film spotting madness final four revealed and a conversation with one of the great contemporary writers on film, Mark Harris. His recent Grantland article about It Follows and What Scares Us Now is a great read. All of that later in the show. But first, enjoy this testimonial about the dangers of riding in cars with boys, also known as It Follows. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself holding hands with a really cute guy, driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. It's having some sort of freedom, I guess. Okay. You awake? What are you doing? You're not gonna believe me. And I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me. And I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. Michael, I don't want to alarm you, but anytime we talk on the phone, I'm recording it and reviewing it like Gene Hackman in the conversation. <laughs> we were doing a little show prep the other day, as you may recall, and you said this, or something along these lines. I haven't gone back to the transcript yet. You've got to have a little bit of sadist in you to make horror movies. And he just doesn't really have that in him. Him is David Robert Mitchell. He is the director whose previous feature, his debut, was 2010's comic drama The Myth of the American Sleepover, which you've described as lovely, and which certainly sounds a lot sweeter than his latest, It Follows. Though it was fun to read the IMDb plot summary for Myth, because I haven't seen that film, and discover that with a few small adjustments, it could totally work for either movie. Here it goes. Four young people navigate the suburban wonderland of Metro Detroit looking for love and adventure on the last weekend of summer. So, four young people navigate the suburban wonderland of Metro Detroit looking for places to hide from an unknown shape-shifting presence that tracks you slowly and tries to kill you, but only if someone has passed the curse onto you through sexual intercourse. So it's all a metaphor for the Detroit economy, well, right? That's the unseen killer. Don't jump ahead. Spoiler alert. Okay, so yeah, that was maybe a little bit tougher to fit in than I thought, but that is the high-concept riff on what usually happens to promiscuous young women in horror films that's at the core of It Follows. 19-year-old Jay, played by Micah Mitchell, has sex with a boy she kind of likes and learns that she'll be haunted and hunted by this evil presence until it kills her or she passes it on. It follows could be the greatest thing ever to advance the pro-abstinence cause. But, Michael, let's <laughs> go ahead. At least since Twilight, right? There you go. <laughs> let's go ahead and assume Mitchell isn't interested in such pedestrian puritanism. If he isn't enough of a sadist to revel in torturing his characters and, by extension, his audience, then what is he up to here? Hmm. Is the central struggle, as in so many horror movies before it, really a metaphor for something larger and more challenging? If so, were you following it. Was I following the metaphor? That's a beautiful intro. Thank I, you. I, and I love, I love the reading of uh, Myth of American Sleepovers. All it needed was a killer, you know, or a specter, or something. Um, before we get to the metaphoric stuff, I think we should just at least point out. And I'm, I'm mixed on this movie, but it's got a fantastic what if premise. Mm -hmm. And this idea that that you have, it's basically an STD that you have to 
get rid of, and you can only get rid of this. Can't go to the doctor. You can't go to the doctor uh, unless you want to sleep with the doctor and get rid of the specter, this unseen presence that can manifest itself in in the in the shape and form of any anybody you know. And the only way to get rid of this is to you know sleep with somebody, pass it along, and then you're you're free. And it's a very rich. And kind of troubling premise because it turns a lot of things on on their heads. Mm-hmm. And this idea that one of the heroine's friends, Paul, played by Keir Gilchrist, who's really the film's secret weapon, I think, is is so smitten with the heroine and has been since they were very young kids and is now smitten with her in a different way, is willing to take the chance just to get the chance to sleep with her. Whatever it takes. Whatever it <laughs> takes. And, and, and yet it's not it's not played for the kind of laughs or the kind of really over-the-top yearning melodrama that a lot of other people would play for. It's really just played very kind of quietly and matter-of-factly. And that's kind of the film in a nutshell, don't you think, in terms of the tone? Whether one likes it or not, or whatever whatever metaphoric reaches you think it's attempting or succeeding at it, I think, mm-hmm. um, one, of, one of its distinguishing hallmarks, certainly, is that it's got this very low-key, kind of matter-of-fact... Uh, tone and just as the heroine's friends have this strange matter of fact readiness to accept this insane premise and just sort of go with it as the film itself goes from location to location from you know really really run down in you know urban Detroit to the beach to you know seeing locations we've seen in many other horror films such as like a municipal swimming pool at night uh, which is where the climax takes place I, I, I do like what Mitchell's about in terms of setting a mood in a very kind of plain spoken, quiet, low key way. Now, does it does it work in terms of what it's doing beyond its central idea? I wish it worked better, Adam. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think, I think he does. I'm not saying when I say I'm not sure he's not enough of a sadist as a writer director to to pull off this kind of horror. I don't mean uh, I wish it had been a lot gorier or or more of a grabber. I just mm-hmm. really mean that. Um, you need to be a, a really kind of aggressive manipulator, whatever style you're working in. And he he just is, I think, for better or for worse, really interested in character in a way that a lot of horror yeah. directors are. Now we'll talk metaphor in a second, but I mean, how did you how did you react to it? Well, I'm right there with you. And there's been a lot of love for this movie, and I was kind of hoping that I could come in guns blazing and really go to bat for it. But I'm really with you in terms of the strengths of the movie, among them being that low key tone mm. and the way he captures the mood in a very plain sort of way. But I also wish it worked better. And so, of course, I'm trying to think of why it didn't work better for me. And I've got a couple ideas, and I don't know if they resonate with you at all, Michael, but when you think about horror movies, they often have a lot of rules, right? It usually takes several gruesome deaths before the characters start to put together the rules, and (laughs) sometimes they can figure out a way to survive, or they can even sometimes mount a counterattack if they do figure it out. Hmm. I appreciate that Mitchell wanted to make this more existentially dreadful. And he didn't want to confine himself and his characters to working within the framework of any kind of rules. But I was frustrated at times by its ambiguity. This is, as you said, a great premise, one big high concept. And when the stakes are, you've got this curse. Now either you spend your life running and losing your mind, or you curse someone else, or you die, you've got a hook. The problem is you don't necessarily have a full-length movie there. Hmm. So Mitchell, I think, makes it so even when you do curse someone else, he adds this layer where if they die, it comes back to you, apparently. 
And I guess then if you die, it goes back to the person who cursed you and so on and so on. And that that kind of muddling of the rules or lack thereof was something that frustrated me because there's basically, as we see, nothing these characters can do. You'll spend your whole life trying to pass on the curse just to earn a reprieve from the inevitable, right. which is death. Right. And that wrinkle, to Mitchell's credit, opens up the curse to be interpreted as something bigger, as a metaphor for, among other things, death in general, right? You're always running, but it's always following you, and it will always at some point catch you. And what respites do we really have? We right, have, right, right, we have right. sex, we right. have love, and we see that all on display. But it also more or less renders all of the characters' actions inconsequential, because there's nothing really they can do to change their fate. And I do feel like there's ambiguity, and they're simply being vague. Mm. And there's a little bit too much vagueness, a little bit too much coyness with the mechanics of this. I went there. I saw this film twice, and I had I had kind of a cool response to it when I saw it at the Cannes Film Festival last year. And again, right as it has with a lot of critics here, it got a very good critical response there. And I I thought, well, I'm tired. I you know I was for the fourth movie that day, whatever. So I was you know I was eager to see it again for the for the review here at the Tribune, and you know for mm-hmm. the Chicago uh, run of the thing, and. I had the same, I was, you know, kind of struggling, frustrated, you know, like, okay, well, why? No, I like this idea. Why am I not in it more? Mm-hmm. Why am I not being taken along further? And I'm, I think, I think it's something you said about, you know, a lot, I'll, whether or not a movie's, a horror movie's rules are trackable and easy to follow, that's kind of a common problem, mm-hmm. I think, but I can usually overlook it if there's enough juice in the filmmaking now that's but but this is not that kind of film deliberately it's not that kind of screw tightener it's a different sort of atmosphere of dread he's trying to set and i i do i do think one of the big problems of this picture is that when you have a specter or a what do you say a phantom of you know an apparition you name it who that can take the form of anything or anybody I think you're you're talking about too big a court to play. <laughs> I think I think that's simply too much ground to cover. And and although uh, there are lovely kind of individual shots in this picture where uh, work in the, kind of the nice widescreen frame where the camera's always slipping around a little bit in that '70s mm-hmm. way, which is also often very effective in this sort of thing. And where if if you see a, a figure just sort of appearing. Um, you know, uh, screen left and sort of walking in the background. Yeah, you, you think, immediately pay attention. Yeah, you, you think what's what's up? What's up? What's up? You know, should I? And, and it, it's it's a, it's guaranteed a certain amount of tension in the scene. But again, fourth fifth time that happens, I don't know. And the other thing, Adam, I think is when the film does choose to deliver the scenes that require some sort of digital special effects. And it's a low budget film, mm-hmm. and you can do a lot with low budget you know, digital work these days. But it, that's where the film really, to me, just sort of caves completely. Yeah. When, you, when you have People thrashing around in swimming pools, being attacked by invisible. No, no, no. I just don't see. All, all I can remember is much, 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 much better films like Let the Right One In, one of my very favorites from the last I'm 15 with you there, years. Yeah. Right, where you use a swimming pool in a way that's just gripping and absolutely low budget, but just so stylish and effective and startling that, you know, I, I wish this film had those kind of moments. Dave? Jay, can you open the door? Is it in the house? What's going on? There's nothing in the house, Jay. I saw it. Open the door, okay? She's in the kitchen. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Open the door and we'll figure this out. There's nothing out here. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new horror film, It Follows. And I'm with you on a couple things you said, including the ending, which we won't spoil here. We'll talk around a little bit. But it's, again, I think, a case of Mitchell deliberately trying to buck generic conventions a little bit in that he shows them finally come up with a plan as if they maybe have figured something out. And then it turns out 
they don't have a plan at all and it's really terrible. But <laughs> I can appreciate their plan sucks and that does maybe seem more realistic. They're kids. What what do they know? They're trying to make sense of this every moment yeah. and they're discovering new things as they go. But it doesn't even realistically suck. It's just completely mindless. And the way it's shot and the way we see the whole thing unfold, I'm with you. There's nothing really scary about it. There's nothing really interesting about it. And that was a letdown. But I had the same frustration in terms of that specter and how he chose to approach it. And this is one of those things. I, I wonder if some of our listeners out there who have seen it and really love this film can write in and challenge me on this because I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness that I could never detect really a clear pattern hmm. to the forms that this thing takes. Sometimes it's a stranger who otherwise looks to be harmless, like maybe an old grandmother. I think that's the first form she sees it in. Sometimes it's a stranger who looks maybe to be a victim of some kind of sexual trauma right. herself. Sometimes it takes the form of a person the character actually knows very decidedly at the end of the film. And it's entirely possible, Michael, that if I watched it again and just focused on this, maybe I'd be able to better detect a pattern. And I actually came across Ignati Vizhnevetsky's review of this from the Toronto Film Festival last September. And he said that there is a sort of progression as this presence gets closer to the victim. Hmm. They become a little bit more familiar. I'm not sure that completely holds. I saw another argument today that the adults are basically the vessels, and that somehow reflects the disconnect between teens and adults in this film and in a larger sense. Mm. But that doesn't really hold true either with some of the forms this thing takes. So maybe, again, if I rewatched it, I'd see it. But that's another case where the vagueness in the way Mitchell chose to show those creatures, whatever they are on screen, was something that became more annoying than intriguing by the end of the film. Right. You've hit on a couple of good points there, I think, uh, which is really uncharacteristic Thank of you, you. Adam. Uh, the, uh, I, th- this world we see in the film, it follows, is really as devoid of parental units as, you know, Charlie Brown and One Peanuts. One of the things I like, you know? actually, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And, uh, and, and as you say, that it's, you know, it, it's, it's a direct line to, you know, a long... A long and sometimes honorable genre of you know teen teens teens in peril horror films. I think um, what you're citing in some of the in some of the more sort of extreme appearances of the specter. You know, we're talking about a lot of you know. There's a certain amount of nudity in the picture. There's a certain amount of body horror fright mm-hmm. in the picture. You're getting at a little bit of what maybe Kubrick was up to in The Shining. And some of these apparitions aren't really meant to make logical linear sense. They're just simply well, as you say, a projection yeah. of that character's fears, and it, it tends to be tied up and all knotted up with a lot of sexual anxiety and for sure. Say, and that, and this this is in fact the overlay of the film, and it's mm-hmm. the whole premise is like you know, if the only way to transmit this thing and get it out of your life is to sleep with somebody, then that would mess me up a slight bit sexually. I <laughs> uh-huh. think as a as yeah, a teenager, for sure. you know, and uh, that's probably another show, you yeah. know, but uh, but that's. That's all such fertile material, you know, to to muck around with, and I I just don't know if Mitchell's style is is quite the thing to activate it. Uh, his own good idea. Mm-hmm. Now now the film is opening up wider this week. That's to right, sixteen hundred theaters. Which I I have to say, if you told me a year ago that this film would even be a modest, uh, I mean, in terms of the cost of the film, it's a big it's a big success already. Yeah. But uh, I'm. I would not have predicted that its mechanics, the scare mechanics of the thing, would have been enough for even a modest uh, mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. So, um, would you? No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I don't want to think like a producer all I know, of a sudden, and I understand that, based on an article I saw today, you could basically spin this movie as a box office success or a complete failure, depending on your perspective. Right. Because of the fact that, yes, it did expand, but it didn't really make much money, but... 
what really were we expecting once it did that. The fact that it was playing on smaller screens and limited cities and was successful in that realm, maybe the Weinstein Company had just kept it sort of in that more limited realm. Maybe everyone would be seeing it as a universal success. A couple of the other things I do want to say I liked about the movie. The scene with Hugh, who is the guy that she sleeps with, the guy who passes the curse on to Jay. This is a shot that I had seen even before I walked into the movie because I think it's just a common used publicity shot on some different websites. And I've seen it on Twitter where you see Jay subdued. She's restrained. She's sitting in some kind of chair. It looks like she might be being tortured in some way. Actually, she's she's in her underwear at this point, And you've got this ominous looking guy, Hugh, behind her. And you're watching that or I'm seeing that frame and going, well, I've seen this a million times. Even in the movies, I've skipped. I've skipped them because (laughs) I don't want to see these kind of scenes play out. Exactly. And then you actually see what happens in Mitchell's version of this scene. And he really does, after, of course, chloroforming her, let's note that, he does want to talk to her. He does want to actually show her what he's just done. And there's a really good wheelchair shot where she's sitting in the chair and the camera's mounted to it that I think captures her disorientation and her terror without it feeling too exploitative. But this whole scene is at once completely self-serving. It's this horrible act that he is performing on her, but it's also oddly compassionate in a way, right? The fact that he actually takes the time, even right. though I think that too is a little bit self-serving because you get a little sexual commentary in there as well where he says to her, you're a girl. You can get anybody you want to have sex with you, which the implication is, well, he's a guy. It's maybe a little bit harder. And there's maybe some logic to that, right? What are his options? He can he can pay for it. He can maybe pull off a one-night stand, or he can court a girl a little bit, like he did with Jay, just enough to get her to sleep with him. And I think that is really his only option, because that comes back to this whole idea of the chain, right? Where right. he wants her to know what's happening, so it will help both of them somehow in the end. It's it's a complex sort of dynamic there, even as it's obviously that, reprehensible. That scene does not play out the way you might necessarily expect. I would not say the movie is necessarily predictable either, and that's the strength of it. Mm-hmm. I think the opening shot has got a certain bravura that I think that, that big most of, that. of the rest of them doesn't. It's just, it's a single-take sort of extended shot where we see, um, you know, this sort of leafy summer, you know, late summer evening, I think, uh, you know, a very green kind of like a tree-lined street, and then, bam, somebody's front door opens, and you see this female running out in uh, improbable red high heels <laughs> and not much clothing on the run from an uns- this unseen specter. And it's just, it's all done in, in long shot um, as if, you know, the ghost of Altman basically were kind of like guiding it. Yeah. And it's it, there's a certain amount of wry uh, kind of distance humor about it, I think. And, and it's the choreography is you know, simple but pretty impressive. And then really none of the rest of the movie looks anything like that, like that that little prologue. But it gets the film off to kind of a, well, maybe start. You know, that's yeah, kind of how no, I felt. I agree. And um, I, just, I just think that if you look at what a director really does for a living, Adam, a lot of it is just paying attention to the internal rhythm of every scene, whether whatever they're working, whatever the kind of material they're working. And I just think that Mitchell shooting this exact same script could have and should have, with a lot of the scenes in the second half of the picture, just simply looked at it and think, okay, what is the, what is the rhythm I'm going for here? Yeah. How, how can I tighten the screws and make this thing deliver in some sort of satisfying audience, satisfying way that, that is still true to what I want to say and still gives this thing a little juice, a little energy? And I just, I, I think I would not write this guy off at all on this because I think it's, 
as I said in the review in the Tribune, I have reservations about my reservations sure. about the film, but just because it's not the same old stuff. Yeah. But uh, I really would say to anybody who responds favorably to It Follows, who really finds it you know, rich, unconventional, and pretty creative for what it's trying to do, please check out his earlier film, The Myth of the American Sleepover. See what you think of that. And then and you really do think this is a guy, whatever I happen to think of this film, which is, you know, as I say, in the middle, it's he's a, he's a filmmaker with a future because he's already made two films that have gotten a lot of critical discussion, mm-hmm. mostly in the positive. And, you know, yeah, am I really in agreement with the high-end praise? Hell no. Am I pleased that the film's finding an audience? Yes, I yes, am. Yes, I, I feel the same way. And I'm with you on the opening of the film. You get a little bit of that carpenter sense with the camera and the bravura camera movement, the 360. You get it as well in Rich Reeland's score. There's a certain heavy synth it's so, feel to it's it. so yeah. Halloween-y. Yeah, it definitely you know, John is. John Carpenter Halloween, yeah. Following that girl around. And if you watch it, I think you kind of noted this. It's a little bit absurd. It's almost comical in a way because she kind of goes in a big circle that the camera follows her and you think, what is she possibly doing? But of course, as the movie goes on, we see that it really does content-wise. It sets up the whole film. We understand exactly what's playing out in that sequence. And maybe we'll get to this at another point in the show as we talk about the things that scare us. But actually, the only moment in this movie that scared me happened during the coda of that sequence, of the opening sequence. There's a moment there that actually unnerved me enough that I'd say it frightened me, but that was really it for this film. Going back to my earlier points, I think I'm a big guy who's a believer in the more specific you are, the more you're likely to bring out ambiguity, a good kind of ambiguity, and you give the viewer space to come up with grander interpretations, if you will. I don't think it's generally a good place to start from a point of ambiguity, and I feel like maybe this film does that too often. But one area that it doesn't, and you did note this as well, is in terms of the way the parents are present or not yeah, present at all. And also, story, right, yeah. in terms of the design, too, when you watch the overall landscape here and some of the technology feels like it's something out of the 80s but it also feels like it's very much the present day it made me think of another movie from this year that i think some people might be able to argue is a little bit of a horror movie the duke of burgundy did you mm, see that no film? i have not no. but it's similar in the sense that that movie seems to take place completely in its own place and time like mm. totally in its own universe and you kind of wonder where the rest of the world is and you feel that a little bit with this film and i like that because i think that opens the film up to more interesting readings and it's our world and at the same time a completely alien one and that makes sense for the content of this film it's it's a bit of a waking nightmare that, that can be that can be very fruitful anyway i mean it's a locally made film here but a very interesting one called Hogtown that is set in Chicago and it's part of it set in 1919 and the 20s some of it set a little later and a lot of it a lot of it is actually depicted in the present day and the, the film really doesn't give you clear signposts about what you're supposed to think of all this but it, it just sort of in the case of that film it really works that's another film actually it's not a horror film but mm-hmm. I mean Hogtown's worth worth a look for that reason but I agree I think that the bigger the bigger the studio and the bigger the budget, the less you you ever see that kind of experimentation yeah. about about slipping around in periods. Yeah, those details. Yeah, yeah they yeah. work here. And the absence of the parents as well, in terms of going back to the start of this review, in terms of metaphorical readings, there is a lot of focus on the decay of the nuclear family here, on the decay of the city to an extent. And I guess you have to at least ask, is Mitchell suggesting that that decay is part of the problem here is that mm. part of what maybe caused this curse in some larger I like sense? no I like I like that that's about as far as I'm I would go on the metaphoric track yeah I tend not to there's something in me that um, as a as a critic and also just as a civilian moviegoer I tend not to aggressively seek out the 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 hidden 
metaphoric meaning mm-hmm. of, of anything. You know, I, I just I tend to if it's not really sort of bubbling up on its own. But I think to that degree, to the to the in the ways we're shown Detroit in the in the in the in the really the, just a handful of settings we see in it follows this forlorn little beach section where a lot of the story takes place. It's all very it very kind of confined and. It doesn't even really all seem like it's part of the same geographical region, but it is essentially. Yeah. And uh, may- maybe, maybe what Mitchell's getting at obliquely and just visually is this sense of a city and a state that's kind of crumbling, and um, you know the old the old rules are not applying, uh, just as uh, the old rules of courtship certainly don't apply to this uh, <laughs> to this no, the sexually transmitted horror that is the premise. That's it. Follows as Michael said, it expands to even more screens this weekend, sixteen hundred. So maybe more listeners out there across. Film Spotting Nation, not just those here in Chicago, but the podcast listeners will get a chance to seek this movie out. If you do and you agree or disagree with our takes, please email us your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. When we come back, Adam explains why he's been badmouthing Bill Murray all night. Film Spotting Madness is down to the final four. Plus, Grantland's Mark Harris joins us for a quick chat about contemporary horror films. Stay with us. We expect down the round morning. I trust the rise of the sun I've been up late with the night birds Begging the dawn not to come Begging the dawn not to come So much I can't hardly bear I have things I must tend to Will you stay as you are lying there? Would you stay as you are lying there? Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode of Film Spotting is presented by Audible.com. Audiobooks, of course, are a great way to pass the time to learn something new and interesting when you are doing whatever you do, usually when you're listening to podcasts like Film Spotting. Maybe you're doing the laundry, designing graphics at work, you're at the gym, whatever it might be. Audible is there to help you out as well, and they are offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. It's been a while, Michael, since we've had an opportunity to share some recommendations. I've got three, my three most recent downloads. Let's and I hear understand them. that you are familiar with one of them, so you can recommend it as well, hopefully. That is Patton Oswalt's Silver Screen Fiend, learning about life from an addiction to film. Yeah, it's good. It, I, I talked to Patton Oswalt when he came through Chicago with it, and the, the book is great. It's just kind of a great history of uh, all, the, all the double features he saw at the rep house in L.A. called the New Beverly. And it's, it's a wonderful history of L.A. at a certain time. And Oswald's just a really sharp, yeah. inventive comic mind. So, yeah, no, it's a really good book. Also recently heard the interview with Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon on Mark Maron's podcast. Her book, Girl in a Band, is available now from Audible. And 
Our guest this week, who we're going to hear from in a moment on the show, Mark Harris, his latest Five Came Back, A Story of Hollywood and the Second World War. It details how five of Hollywood's most legendary directors, Ford, Weiler, Houston, Capra, and Stevens, were all involved in the war effort. Michael, I know you have this one at home as well, a recent gift or two from some family. <laughs> I got multiple copies of it, and uh, I was very pleased uh, to, to get them all, because uh, the ones I didn't keep, I gave away to people who were very happy to get it, and it's very, very good. To download any of these audiobooks for free or another one of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash film. That's audiblepodcast.com slash film. Holding matches like I'm a wild horse. About to run away scared. About to run away played secret in Malouis name when I was 18. For me, it was more than wrong. And because you were secret, only you can be had in know. The play tells a simple story. An older woman falls in love with a scheming girl that has her wrapped around her little finger. So who's going to play secret? To one others. She's 19. I will play the one who drives her to a suicide. <laughs> I think she's probably my favorite actress. You mean more than me. So apparently Kristen Stewart not going with Juliette Binoche in her film Spotting Madness Ballad. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. That's a bit of the trailer there from the new film from Olivier Assayas, The Clouds of Sils Maria. This is a highly anticipated film for me. Michael, I believe you've already had a chance to see it. Is that true? I have. I have seen it. There you go. At the Cannes Film Festival? Yeah. and In fact, it got, a, it got a good ride here at the Chicago International Film Festival last year, too. One of the reasons I'm excited, I like Assayas as a filmmaker, but also Juliette Binoche is luminous. Krista Stewart also in the film. Chloe Grace Moretz, not so high on her, maybe in the same category as Julia Binoche, but it is what it is. You've seen the movie. I'll yeah, have to reserve my judgment. I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it too. But it, no, it's it's an intriguing picture, and I think I think you'd be surprised at among other things, uh, Kristen Stewart, if you're if you're sort of middle end to not great on her, which generally. I am. Okay, I'm, yeah. I've always found her a little more interesting than that. Okay, but, um, you know, not a, not a wide range. But I think no. affecting one in, in, the, in the right role. Well, apparently the French found her very affecting in that role. She won the César, the French equivalent of the Academy Award. She's the first American, if my notes are correct, Michael, to ever win that award. First one. Okay. First well, one. That's a big honor it for Kristen is. Stewart. We will see. We will see if it lives up when Clouds of Sils Maria comes out. Now, we're not just mentioning this because we're hyping the film. We're actually giving away free passes for our local Chicago listeners here. Tuesday night, April 14th an advanced screening of the film, and you can see it for free. Excellent. All you got to do is go to filmspotting.net to enter. It's right there in the top stories over there. Also at filmspotting.net, you can find information about our marathons, and we are closing out finally. We've actually already recorded it by the time most of you are hearing this. Hopefully, you have already seen that in your podcast feed if you're a subscriber to Film Spotting in iTunes. The final film in the Satyajit Ray Marathon, Charulata or The Lonely Wife, and we also shared our Ray Marathon Awards. We finally landed on a name. Josh and I spent so much time talking about the amazing camera work in the Ray films mm. that we thought, why not honor Ray's cinematographer, Subrata Mitra? So they're the Mitras. Uh, the Mitras. That's what like we <laughs> went with. If you want to check that out, if you haven't already, again, filmspotting.net or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Okay, so this would normally be the place where we would go do a little massacre theater. We've got an interview coming up, a lot that we're going to pile into the show. So we thought we'll put that on hold for another week. We are going to give you some more film spotting madness. Uh, 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 no! 
I got him. Is that how you say hello? Where are you coming from? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe I shot Bill Murray. Mr. Murray. I just... Bill, I think no. Bill? Yeah? I don't think we're going to be able to stitch this. Ah, uh, that's still tender. You think you might pull through? No. If it means anything now, I am so sorry. It's just instinctive. It's my bad. I was never a very good practical joker. So do you have any regrets? <laughs> Garfield, maybe. Do we have any regrets? Yeah, including Bill Murray in Film Spotting Madness is one of my regrets, or maybe not arming Leo DiCaprio, and now Jake Gyllenhaal with shotguns. They needed them for that battle. Mm. That clip, possibly a spoiler of sorts, if you somehow still haven't caught up with Zombieland. Bill Murray gunned down by Jesse Eisenberg with ghosts of Film Spotting Madness rounds past Woody Harrelson and Emma Stone in that scene. Abigail Breslin didn't make the cut for Film Spotting Madness. Who knows? Maybe. It's, it's like that film was designed for film spotting madness. It <laughs> exactly. was. It was. It was. A perfect pull there by our co-producer, Sam. Okay. This all started with 32 film spotting favorites. Only one actor survives to act another day. Last week, we shared the Elite Eight. We had four more matchups for you. And Michael, I understand you actually participated for the first time. I you voted. voted. Okay. I voted. I'm a citizen. I want to hear know. how you voted. We'll get to some listener comments as well as we share the results and announce the final four, our final four contestants in the film Spotting Madness. I am giddy with anticipation here. We start with Mr. Bill Murray going against Jake Gyllenhaal. Michael, first, how did you vote? What, Murray over Gyllenhaal? Yeah. Yeah, I picked Bill Murray <laughs> over Jake Gyllenhaal. Speaking for most of I mean, spotting listeners, yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah, honestly, I, I, Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler really did kind of partially revise my general mm-hmm. estimation of the guy, who I think is an interesting actor generally, but he's also been... I've said this before on the show. I think I, if you look at some of, the, some of the films he's made, he's always been the not quite best aspect of of some really really tremendous films like Zodiac, Brokeback mm-hmm. Mountain, but uh, but he's not the reason they're good. True. He's, he's always being outacted by everybody he's with. Nightcrawler, maybe he just needs more solo acts. Yeah. Nightcrawler, I think it's a whole different side. And it, of course, that film I think just in general works. Yeah. So, uh, but no, Bill Murray over. Yeah. Okay. I well, think Murray's got the range. He's got the wit. He's got the. Uh, everything. He's got the everything. I, well, I, you don't speak for most of Film Spotting listeners, but the majority, because Bill Murray will advance 54% to Jake Gyllenhaal's 46%. Sorry, I voted Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler was a big reason why. But here's the thing. I just found this out on Twitter today. Hmm. My usual co-host here, Josh Larson, Mr. Bill Murray, the guy that's been just pushing him through all these rounds, hyping him up, loves everything he does with Wes Anderson, says that his best work is still ahead of him. He voted Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal. too. Gyllenhaal. He voted Gyllenhaal. He Con- sold out Bill Murray. Contrarian. Yeah. Through 150 votes, this did one he, was did, really tight. Did he not understand the voting procedure? He may not have. I mean, I wonder if, I mean, you know. He can be dead It seemed sometimes. clear. I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> through 150 votes, this was neck and neck, but then Bill Murray did run away with it. We heard from listener Felix Korch, who says, will you please stop letting nostalgia drive your vote? This is a vote about what's to come, about who will keep acting. Do you really think Murray has much more to offer? Think about what Gyllenhaal could still do after he found his peak form in Nightcrawler. Think of the children. Won't anybody think <laughs> of the children? Felix, you read my mind. You read my mind. <laughs> 
Felix the frustrated screenwriter there. That's, that's great. We have a lot I of them. Love, out I love there. that. I love that. We go on to the next matchup. Let's see. I can't imagine we split on this one, Michael. Joaquin Phoenix versus Matthew McConaughey. You voted how? Yeah, I voted for uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So I'm I'm with the people. On this. You are with the people. Sixty three percent to Joaquin Phoenix. It's like a Reagan landslide. It know? is yeah. McConaughey yeah. playing Mondale in this <laughs> matchup. So why don't you take this great comment from John DeCarly? To me, he says, to me, Phoenix is the most mercurial and exciting actor working today, and has the chance to be the actor of his generation. That's a lot of hyperbole, but on the strength of his last three big performances alone, the master. Her and inherent vice, I believe it to be true. I often sense some fatigue with Phoenix, as if he's only capable of big, bold, physical performances. But his subtle, powerful work in Her and the films of James Gray proves otherwise. Another plus for Phoenix, since I'm still here, he's made nearly flawless choices about what projects to undertake. I don't see him making a vapid, facile indie comedy or a cookie-cutter blockbuster anytime soon. Taking all of this together, I say he's the actor with the brightest future and the most transcendent performances in film. I'll be singing the Phoenix fight song throughout this tourney. <laughs> well, I'm right there with you, John, and I only regret that he's about to run into a potential buzzsaw as we get to the results of the next matchup because I thought Phoenix had a chance to win this, and he still does have a chance to win this. But another listener, speaking for me better than I could, it is those recent performances, Inherent Vice, Her, and The Master, but also what John said in terms of the future, expecting that Joaquin Phoenix is not going to make bad choices. Or if he does, if the films all are not my favorites of the year, as those films ended up being, mm. that's fine. You know he's going to make interesting choices. Right. And not every actor is going to. Interesting choices in the material and in what he does on screen with the character. Right. I mean, I mean, the one question I have, I think, with some... Mm, it's a little bit of the Nicolas Cage question, too, that, that he doesn't have the normal range of real relatability or, quote, everyman uh, aspects to his on-screen persona. He's just simply too idiosyncratic and his own species. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, that's well and put. It, and, it, you know, my God, it works beautifully with the right role. And he's also, you know, a funnier actor than you than, than I think a lot of people r- realize. What if you, I, I think the work in her is really... Really remarkable. But then I talked to I talked to Spike Jones about her when he came through town, and he said, "You know, Joaquin Phoenix really didn't know he was in a comedy. He played it all very <laughs> kind of straight and sincere. Funny. And that's you know, it, but I think that is exactly. I think it's the key to why that film doesn't feel like just a premise." Hmm. We move on to that buzzsaw I mentioned. The number one seed in Film Spotting Madness, the Kentucky of the tournament, is my beloved Michael Fassbender against the wonderful, the always wonderful Kate Blanchett, Michael. Fassbender takes down the great Kate. Hmm. 53%, though, to 47%. This was a close one. It was very close. Lauren Bycroft writes in, this is quite possibly the hardest vote of the madness thus far. Quite possibly the best working actor and actress out there going head-to-head. I love Fassbender and everything, but I had to go with Blanchett on this one, and I have to thank Josh for my ability to make the choice. Listening to him talk about who commands a room when they walk in. Fassbender is magnetic on screen, but Blanchett has a commanding, otherworldly presence wherever you see her. Interviews, red carpets, you name it, she can dominate it. I'm on board for anything Blanchett wants to dish out. Michael, are you on board? Did you pick Kate over Mr. Fassbender? Uh, This is where I start questioning the whole wisdom of this stupid idea about pitting (laughs) one actor against another. You're going to make me kick you out, aren't you? 
<laughs> security? Uh, I think I, you know, honestly, I think I'd, I'd probably have to go fa- uh, Fassbender uh, simply because his Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator was fantastic. And uh, he's a real chameleon. He could do it. He can do Kate Blanchett doing Kate Hepburn. That's how good he is. They're both great. Now, they, I'm glad we see this item. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, they, they uh, I think they both have a fairly promising career ahead of them. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, They won't if, be deterred by this defeat with the should gu- they go with, down. With a gun to my head, I would probably um, still find a way to get out of the room alive okay. and, and not vote. But uh, Fassbender. Yeah, I'll go for Really? Sure. Okay, what great. The hell? What the well, hell? we can still be friends. That brings us to the final matchup here. Jessica Chastain versus Tom Hardy. And... We've been keeping a close eye on this one because it's been neck and neck, and really only in the past few hours before the voting shut down did we see the winner pull away just a little bit, Michael. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the the gap is really even a little bit bigger than it probably was throughout the race. Sam was actually paying this much attention to it. 350 votes, Tom Hardy was up by 13. 600 votes, Chastain up by 15. 840 votes, it's tied. 950 votes, Hardy by 10. 981 votes, 81, you should note. Hardy by one. And then finally, Chastain found the second win. She takes down Tom Hardy, 52% to 48%. Chris Massa weighing in with his take on the matchup. Chris says, uh, Tom Hardy is brilliant, no question, but I can't help but wonder if he's one of a small handful of actors who could have pulled off the performance in Locke and to a lesser extent in Bronson. I don't know of any actress who could have accomplished what Jessica Chastain did in The Tree of Life, Take Shelter, and Zero Dark Thirty. He is amazing, but she is transcendent. Transcendent. Yeah, where are you at on this one, Michael? How'd you vote? Jeez. This is the hardest one for me. Can I don't I, know that I've actually clicked the vote yet. I, I would I would actually say to Sam, these are incredible analytics. And, you know, what, <laughs> yes. uh, do we have the page view count too? Or is, I mean, <laughs> we can for, pull it. I'm waiting for the others. Um, <laughs> is this what it's like? See, when you do it with basketball, you have you have the, you have have the more like, okay, here, how is their season? It's not a subjective. How are they looking? They're going off their records. And, right. Yeah. Right. This is, a, this is really, this is a stupid We thing. wanted this to be painful. If it wasn't painful, then... It wasn't working. It's painful. It's painful. Um, One of them's never going to make another film. Or let me ask it this way, Michael. Tomorrow, tomorrow, you walk into a theater. Yep. Two movies are playing. All you know about them is one stars Tom Hardy. Hmm. The other one stars Jessica Chastain. They're in the lead role. They dominate most of the screen time. Which one? Adam, do you go see? it's a tie. <laughs> it's a tie. It's a tie. Damn you it. go half and half. I would. I would. I would do like I How did. How did you get out? I of it? would do like I did as a lad. I would skip from multiplex to multiplex. You know, from, from auditorium wow. to auditorium. Oh hell! I'll just go Chastain. Well, I went Chastain. Oh, you did as well. I did. Okay. Yeah, and, All right, and I'll, I'll go admit, Tom. I'm going to go Tom Hardy. There you go to, to split it. I did partly. It was a pick'em, so I had to give a little edge to Chastain, partly because I really wanted to see an actress in the final four. We needed to have some competition here. We needed to have both sides represented. So if I'm looking at them and see them basically as equals and there's no other way to decide it, I love both of them, that gave me the nudge. You know who I'd put in there even higher than who? Kate Blanchett and Jessica Chastain? You want to, uh, from from left, field, left field, Jennifer Ely. Speaking of Zero Dark Thirty, mm-hmm. who played a, a supporting role in Zero Dark Thirty and you know, has done great work in, in smallish roles for everybody, you know, from Contagion. She's a great stuff. actress. I And fantastic stage actress. And I think one of these days she's going to get a film role that just gets her out of the supporting pack hmm. and makes her realize she is a contender. She couldn't play Bronson or Bane, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. She would have better diction than Tom Hardy did. <laughs> Maybe. <in Bane. laughs> okay. Well, that brings us to the final four, our final two matchups. 
Wow. Michael Fassbender versus Joaquin Phoenix or Bill Murray. The venerable Bill Murray has made it to the final four. He faces off against Jessica Chastain. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm not going to put you on the spot here, Michael, but I may bring you back at some point. To weigh I, in. I do you know, know where you're going? I, I do. I, with these, I, I know. Okay, yes. well, then I am going to put you on the spot. Tell All right. us. Uh, it's going to be Fassbender and Chastain. Okay. So, uh, much as I love Bill Murray and yeah. Phoenix many times, uh, that's what I do Fassbender, <laughs> Chastain. I think that may just be how it comes out, but we will see how everyone Oh, no, votes. no, that, that's how it's going to come out, man. <laughs> you're going to sway it one I'm way or another. I think, <laughs> I think your passion may do it. <laughs> <laughs> Round four voting. It's now open. Decide who gets to the championship match, filmspotting.net. And for more Film Spotting Madness fun, check out our bonus content this week. You can get that if you have the Film Spotting app or if you go to filmspotting.net, click on apps. All the information is there. Since Michael's missed out on the previous rounds, we're just going to hit him rapid fire with some of these matchups and get his gut instinct. It's going to be like the, it'll be like the auditing sequence in The Master. It will be. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> Hello? Hey! You're ready to go. Your canoe will be right down there by the water. I can't wait to show ours. First time here, it's going to be awesome. Meet him up? No, no, I know this park well. You mind me asking you where you're headed? Life with trail. Bear spray. You're not going to need it. I would be lucky to see anything bigger than a chipmunk. That's a clip from the trailer for the horror film Backcountry, and our guest here on the line with us, Mark Harris, recently wrote an article for Grantland where he said this, We all have particular things that scare us, and high on my list are nature, tents, camping, getting lost, being outdoors, large animals, and placing my fate in the hands of a complete dope. Your phobias may vary. Indeed, they do. It sounds like Backcountry is the type of movie that would definitely scare Mark Harris. He's a pop culture writer for Entertainment Weekly and Grantland. He's the author of Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War, and also Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies, and The Birth of the New Hollywood. That article I mentioned for Grantland is titled Scared Scentless, the Indie Horror Boom, and What Frightens Us Now. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. You wrote that It Follows didn't really scare you, the movie we reviewed here in the previous segment of the show, but you did say this, for moviegoers between, say, 12 and 24, maybe It Follows will be their primal scare, their first time, the thrill they keep trying to experience by returning to theaters. I'm curious to start, do you remember your first time? My first time being scared in a movie theater was probably Jaws, which I saw with my dad when I was about 11 years old, and and I remember the scene where suddenly uh, the severed head appears in that hole in the boat. We were in a huge packed movie theater on the first weekend and everybody jumped and everybody screamed and then everybody laughed and that was my first experience of, of how much fun it was to be scared in a big group of people. Were you drawn back then by that experience or were you one of the people who was afraid of the water forever or were you, know, were you seeking that type of thrill that you had there with Jaws? Oh no, I was absolutely drawn back. I, I, was, I was definitely Definitely one of those kids who wanted to, you know, test himself. If anything looked really scary uh, in terms of a horror movie, I, I would absolutely be there on a Friday night. You know, through my through my teens and probably through my early twenties. I was I'm not one of those people, uh, but I have met them who just say, why would I ever want to go to a movie to be scared? There are people who really viscerally just don't like it. I like it. Yeah, I'm raising my hand over here. <laughs> I'm one of those. <laughs> I like it more than I realize, I think, because I, 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 there's a certain kind of horror that I really have stayed away from as a civilian. You know, the, the more the just the kind of balls out gore based stuff like the Saw and Hostel series, which is isn't really about horror. It's just about 
grotesquery, you know, and or in a way that I'm not interested. But I remember the exact same experience, Mark, with Jaws, and also the year later, I believe, De Palma's Carrie, which it was the first really amazing false fake you out ending with the hand up from the grave, right? I mean, that was the biggest, best, loudest scream I've ever been a part of in a movie theater that was followed by, as you said, with the Jaws, just uh, with your Jaws experience, just this wave of laughter. I mean, it's amazing. Just just as a release, and it was, uh, De Palma's the kind of sadist that it was born for this genre, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I had exactly the same experience. Jaws was first, and then a year later, Carrie. You also had a great paragraph in your recent piece where you said, as we're talking about the things that scare us, when I tried to make a list of the screen experiences that scared me in the last year, I was startled to realize that I still get scared a lot, but almost none of the things that do it for me are in horror movies. And your list of what got to you includes the last minute of the last episode of The Jinx, Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler, Steve Carell and Foxcatcher, The Woods and the Water in the moody French gay erotic drama Stranger by the Lake, and also the last minute of the second to last episode of The Jinx. As I look back on those, and I'm familiar with all of them, there's a lot of creepiness there. And I would say I can watch all of those and feel disturbed or unsettled or unnerved by the characters or those moments. But I don't know that I personally would describe any of them as scary. So I'm curious, when writing the article, did you consider the different types of ways that we get scared when we watch movies? I did. And I think for me and for a lot of people, as we get older, the kind of jump out of your seat scare that we were just talking about in Jaws and Carrie, that gets really, really hard to replicate. Mm-hmm. And also, when it is replicated, it often feels cheap. You know, the the bathroom mirror shuts and suddenly there's a face behind the person who's in danger. We've seen that a zillion times. So I feel like I've gotten a little bit numb to instant scares, but still, I really, really love dread. I mean, a kind of creepy sense of dislocation or disorientation or what kind of movie is this or is this person dangerous or not dangerous or is this situation what it appears to be? That's the kind of thing that really gets under my skin a lot more than either gore, which doesn't really do anything for me, or sort of jump scares. Although I will say that one horror movie I didn't get a chance to talk about in the piece that that really did work for me last year was The Babadook. Um, mm. That, I thought, was was a straight-up scary movie that actually was scary. I think we're both with you on that one. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of my favorites of the last 10 years, easily. And uh, everything you're talking about, Mark, I think is, is it puts the onus on the screenwriter in a way that most screenwriters just simply won't even take the time to do, to figure out that sort of indirection or these you know, how to kind of deal with, you know, red herrings that actually pay off and uh, and just unexpected sources of dread that come out of either character or atmosphere or something. Um, and, and because often you get, you know, you've, you've seen your share of horror movies that have absolutely no visual flair of any kind. And then you just, you simply are waiting for the sound effects guy to hit that, you know, that metallic scare sound, which is, talk about a cliche, right? Right. I mean, I think one thing that that really knocks me out of a horror movie is when I feel just handled by people who have absolutely no frame of reference but other horror movies. You know, that if I feel like, oh, I'm watching something by a director who has seen all of the same movies I've seen and is just trying to kind of replicate what he got from bits and pieces of those, that tends not to be very scary for me because really scary stuff to me is not 
solely drawn from uh, a vocabulary of movies. It touches other parts of you that are maybe more sensitive than just the part that likes movies. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect segue into where I wanted to go, because also in your piece you talk about how the genre is really defined by a referentiality, and there's a certain sense of nostalgia and people who understand all of those conventions, and sometimes they're playing with them, sometimes they're just having fun referencing them, and I wonder if you see that as something unique to the horror genre, because we, for example, here on the show a few weeks ago talked about the new Cinderella, and we sort of framed it in the context of, you know, fairy tales now are almost always revisionist, you know, a lot of noirs, a lot of westerns are revisionist. That's a different type of referentiality, but obviously it's acknowledging those conventions at play. Do you think that horror is any different than those other genres? No, I think you're probably right that that's that's like an across the board thing. I mean, certainly comic book movies now have their own vocabulary and and their own kind of stylistic tropes that we see referenced in movie after movie. And I think a referential movie can sometimes work. I mean, it, it follows, as I said, is is very referential. And while it didn't personally scare me, I appreciated the kind of intelligence behind it and 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 the craft in it. And I thought the specific references in it were were actually quite clever and interesting. But yeah, it's I think it's a little bit of a, a block to being genuinely scared if the first thing you think is, oh, that scared me very much like the time I really got scared in that other movie that this movie knows about. You know, it, it's like it removes you a step further from being in the movie and puts you more in the place of being in the director's experience of having seen other movies. I haven't read anything you've written, if you have ever written, about uh, the Paranormal Activity franchise. Do you have any interest in that franchise? It's sort of like, to quote J.K. Simmons, it's like not quite my tempo. <laughs> I mean, like I, I, the found footage thing has never quite worked for me, but, but I think... You know, this is where you you start to talk about horror almost the way you would talk about comedy or porn. Like, either you find something scary or funny or sexy, or you don't. And there's kind of no point in, in trying to convince somebody to be scared of something that they're not scared of, or vice versa. Like, for me, Backcountry, a nature movie, that just pushes all my buttons. Like, everything about it was like a sort of an encyclopedia of what I find scary. Um, <laughs> and I think one reason is that there's, and I don't think this is giving anything away, there's nothing supernatural in that country. Did you date a scary uh, park ranger at any point in your life? <laughs> I did not, but in high school I did go out with a girl who screamed so loud at Halloween that we were actually asked to leave the theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, listening to you talk about nature, I feel a little bit like I'm listening to Alvy Singer talking to Annie Hall there about, you know, all the things that you can find out in the out in the wilderness. It's, Dick and Perry are out there. I mean, you don't want to be part of that. Uh, I'm not going to say you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe a good point to end here. You know, I have both your books, and my favorite number happens to be five, and yet somehow, not until today, did I put together the fact that your books do include five movies and the birth of the new Hollywood. Five came back, where you talk about five legendary directors. Have you ever considered writing a horror book? And if you did, what five horror movies would be the basis for it? Huh, you know, I've never considered writing a horror book. I really like Jason Zinneman's book, Shock Value. So I'd have to come up with a, a horror book that is as good as that, but in a different direction. If I were to pick five that I just loved off the top of my head, even though it's not technically a horror movie, I'm going to start again with Jaws. Then I would absolutely go to Carrie. 
rounded out with Alien, the mm. first Alien movie. Uh, let's see, two more. Um, Suspiria. Nice. I, I remember being really scared by that. And you know what I really loved when I was young was the Hitcher. Road terror movies are another genre that really, really freak me out. Is so, that Rutger Hauer? Rutger Hauer. Yep. Yeah, I remember it. I forget what the, what year did that come out? Was that the early 80s? 82 maybe? I think maybe? it was like mid-80s. Okay. I, I remember like maybe 84, 85. So we're talking a pretty strong adherence just to that 75 to 83 period for horror. I would never claim that those are the best horror movies, but I think they're the ones that hit me in my sweet spot in terms of how old I was, how scarable I was. That's what really worked for me. Well, great stuff, Mark. It was so wonderful to have you on the show. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks again. Nice to talk to you, Mark. Thanks. Well, Michael, so now we know how to scare Mark Harris. We just send him camping with you. I think that would work. Or me. Right, frightening. I might be moody because of the film spotting madness True. not going my way. True. Yeah. So we know what scares him. What scares us? The top five 21st century horror movies is next. Stay with us. Is it still okay that I don't know how to be alone? Would it be okay if I just came home tonight? We share an apartment on the Upper West Side And my worst problem is I don't sleep at night Woman downstairs has lost her mind And I don't care how, sure I don't care why Why no false hope Why no false hope A storm hits the city and the lights go Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners, can you hear me? This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, and I need your help. On our latest episode, Allison Wilmore and I reviewed the classic 70s paranoid thriller Three Days of the Condor, and ever since we recorded the episode, we've been followed by this white van. I know this sounds crazy, but doing an entire podcast about conspiracy thrillers seemed to have uncovered a conspiracy to destroy the world's film podcasts. Apparently, the government decided there's just too many of us. If you don't listen, Adam and Josh could be next. So please, listen to this show by subscribing in iTunes or checking us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Our very lives depend on it. The truth is out there! Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to... Film spotting. Nancy, what are you doing? Do you see it? There's someone behind the door. What? There's someone standing over there. I, I don't see anyone. Right at us. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Michael Phillips. I'm Adam Kempinar. A clip there from 2013's The Conjuring, the director James Wan. We just saw earlier this evening, I think my first James Wan joint 
was Furious 7. We'll talk about that next week on the show. I have not seen The Conjuring, despite the fact that I wanted to catch up with it, Michael, because we are doing our top five 21st century horror movies this week, the best scary movies of the past 15 years or so. I was all set to lead into this top five with that movie before I had any idea where you were going, just because I heard director Joe Swanberg, Chicago's own, on the WTF podcast with Mark Maron, and he was asked about the type of movies that he doesn't really make, but he really respects and admires. And the go-to movie for him was this movie, The Conjuring. The Conjuring. He adores it, thinks it's basically a masterpiece. And really? I can't weigh in there, but I understand you might be able to. I, uh, well, I, that's a rare point of agreement uh, in terms of myself and Mr. Swanberg on, okay. in terms of uh, our aesthetics, I think. But uh, yeah, you know, I love it. I love the film. It's my number five. Is it really? Yes, it is. It's a film that I was so pleased found a big, broad horror audience of various ages because uh, I, I thought for a while, I thought, well, this will this will appeal to people like myself who like a more kind of indirect, less gore-based kind of horror. It's very consciously a throwback and tied into films like the Amityville Horror. And it's a, it's a haunted house film that, you know, a genre that goes back to things like the old dark house and, I mean, movies that, that go back to practically the beginning of movies. And I, I just, I'm, I'm really fond of it. Farmiga and Patrick Wilson play these demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and they're real-life ghost hunters, and they're investigating the strange goings-on in this Riverside farmhouse owned by a family of seven, headed by Ron Livingston and Lily Taylor. And right there, you're talking about actors, Adam, that I think know how to just sort of slip very kind of you know quietly but confidently into a, a situation that you can take seriously so that the scares, when they do come, when you get little details like the clock where every night it stops at 3.07 a.m. and unexplained bruises are showing up on the mother's body. And I mean, these details, we've all seen them before. We know what a haunted house movie generally looks like and how it behaves. And this film does too, but there's something about the way Juan shoots it and directs it. It's all very, very stealthy in terms of the camera work and the way it, again, I've evoked Robert Altman before, but it's got a very 70s kind of Altman-esque slip-slidey visual attack where you just don't quite know where the next scare is going to come from. And you're always aware of kind of this bustling activity in the house. It's got a claustrophobic setting, but it's it really doesn't feel claustrophobic. It feels like the camera's always just slightly on the move, but also slightly uneasy in a way that makes you mm-hmm. uneasy. I'm, I'm really fond of this film. And I, I thought, well, the kids won't like it. The kid, the kids, you know, anybody under 25 may not find an access point because they're just simply into other things. But, you know, uh, damned if that film didn't really just play really well for a few weeks and make a ton of money. Yeah. I was very pleased. Hmm. I hope I'm pleased, too, when I finally get a chance to see it. And one of the things I hope will maybe come out as we go through this top five list, Michael, is what really does scare you if you are someone who still ever gets scared at the movies or by anything going back to our conversation with Mark Harris, he listed off some of those things that frighten him. And as I told him, I thought they were all creepy and kind of disturbing, but don't necessarily really scare me. Hmm. They don't send actual shivers up my spine. They don't pop into my head those images when I'm in my basement all alone at night and it forces me to run up my stairs like I'm being chased by Leatherface. And yes, I'm a grown man who still has these moments. Is it well lighted? Do you have lights down there? <laughs> that's, Can you turn them on? That's it. That's it. You gotta, you gotta the answer to all my problems. 60 watt bulbs will take care of your thing. Man. Where were you, Michael? Speaking of Leatherface, back in 2012, around Halloween, you were on the show with Josh and myself. We shared our top five terrifying characters. So I know a little bit what 
scares you. And Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was my number four. That was wow. a fun top five list. But for me, it's not about, of course, being startled or being disturbed necessarily, but it is about being frozen with terror. Your heart starts pounding, the blood is racing. And I've talked about this a little bit over the years on the show. The things that have always gotten to me, going back to when I was a very young kid, eyes scare me. Mm. Scary eyes, creepy eyes, creepy. just images of faces. That's why The Exorcist had such an effect on me as a young kid and still does. In terms of purely visceral reactions to movie moments, though, maybe the moment that got my heart pounding the most recently was The Imitation Game. There's a flashback scene in The Imitation Game, not a horror movie, though. Sometimes the screenplay is scary, where you see a young Alan Turing at boarding school, and he's being tormented by the bullies there at school, and they actually have him trapped under the floorboards. Mm. And for someone who is extremely claustrophobic, that was hard to watch. I was watching it on a screener, and I actually just paused it and said, I don't know how much of this I can watch, because that really did bother me so much. And I alluded to it earlier in the show when we talked about It Follows. The scariest moment in that movie for me is right after the whole intro with the girl who is running away from something invisible. She gets in her car, and her dad is asking her, what's wrong? And she won't answer him and won't really come Hmm. clean, because what is she supposed to say to him, right? And then she goes off and... She gets a phone call. We don't really know what's going on, but she basically says her goodbye to her father. Right. And that really did creep me out only because it put me in the position of being a father and thinking about a moment of terror like that where and, and something— And you don't understand the situation. Something really yeah. crazy is happening to one of my children. They seem like they need to be protected, and I can't do anything for them. Right. And something dire seems like it's about to happen. Yeah. That that really unnerved Now, that me. explanation is the perfect sort of cogent— Example of for, for all those millions of people who simply don't understand why people like horror films mm-hmm. because like, why would you want to access that sort of a media? Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. that's a, and, and I'm I'm you know I have no problem with it if it's done well. But, exactly. Uh, but uh, my wife, for example, you know, would be like, why would we conceivably spend the money? On yeah, something I like think that? my wife would be with her. That brings us finally to my number five, and I did go with movies for the most part on this list. After all that setup, I did want to focus on movies that scared me, hmm. really did scare me. Still. And movies that are usually defined as horror movies. I didn't try to really stretch the definition too far here. Maybe we'll get into some of that. So keeping the scare factor in mind, my number five is The Ring from Gore Verbinski, 2002 remake of remake. a Japanese the re- horror The film. remake is good enough for your list. I haven't seen the original, uh, so I'm going with the remake. Okay. Yeah, okay, and I don't okay. know based on how much it scared me. I want to see the original. (laughs) Naomi Watts, one of my favorite actresses in this film, she plays a journalist who investigates what happened to her niece, who, it seems, and we see most of this unfold at the beginning of the film, watched a tape, and the story says, you die seven days later Hmm. if you watch it, and she does die. The mystery that Watts discovers involves a young adopted girl named Samara, who we see at one point, coming out of the screen, coming out of that videotape, if you will, and that single image is enough great. To, it's great. to just it's freak me out. Really beautifully handled, too, <laughs> yeah. in a way that owes an awful lot to the original. But um, that idea that, you know, uh, found footage is mm-hmm. not a new trope, it's an old trope, and, uh, you know, this is essentially a found footage you know, moment within the horror film, but my God, that, that's an effective couple minutes. Yeah, it is, yeah. and speaking of effective, our friend Keith Phipps, formerly of the AV Club, wrote this great opening line. There is a videotape that, once watched, causes its viewers to die seven days later. No, it's not Bruce Willis's The Kid. 
Zing. <laughs> and he does say, at the end, the ring features a heroine several cuts above the average screen queen. Watts, whose worldly facade is chipped away as the film progresses, revealing an expression of ashen dread. And I look over my list as we're going to get to some of these picks. Actually, that applies to most of my list in terms of interesting female characters at the core of a lot of these films. For better or for worse, this was a movie that spawned a bunch of remakes of Japanese horror films because it was such a hit. But almost every scene involving Samara, especially, as I said, creepily crawling towards me, that did scare me. And the dread at its core, where you do something harmless that irrevocably ruins your life and may even... And your television. Even, yeah. I think, I think it messes up your... your television goes th- too. <laughs> and, and in this case, what it does is it sets a timeline on your life. That fear that, what if you knew you only had so much time? That is a real and universal fear, I think. And if that all sounds a little bit familiar, going back to the start of the show, it should. It follows, actually, really ties in nicely with The Ring in terms of the final reveal of The Ring, and the final reveal, I think, of It Follows. There's a definite connection between right. those films. That's so right. The Ring is my number five. That's great. I, I really don't know anybody, anybody who's into horror, or even casually into it, who doesn't think that that key scene in The Ring isn't just hugely effective hmm. and haunting. It's, it's beautifully rendered. My number four does stretch the definition of horror, Adam, and uh, I'm proud of it. You know, I'm not ashamed of it. We've got to have someone here who's willing to be an iconoclast. I'm going to go with uh, director Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, which came out just last year. And this is the one with uh, Scarlett Johansson as an alien uh, who is... Uh, none of this is laid out clearly in any kind of linear way. She's an alien from some other place, and she's recently assumed human form. And in the novel Under the Skin is based on, you know why she's picking up men and basically harvesting them for material to send back to the home planet. But all that, all the explanation and context was daringly just tossed out by Glazer and and the, everybody else who collaborated on this really extraordinarily and unique picture. It's it's simply the the images it gets. And the the little mini worlds it creates in terms of where this alien really is doing her her business and and how, how her interactions with the human beings who who really don't know what's hitting them as as these pickups are sort of being conducted, you know, all that's handled with hidden cameras and real. Life mm-hmm. citizens who had a who had to sign, uh, you know, right. uh, agreements to be, appear in this film. So in a way, it was like it was like the the, the sort of science fiction thriller version of Borat. You right. know, I mean, I mean, and <laughs> and it's unbelievably effective. I it think. Is. Also, I guess the reason this is on my list, Adam, is that what happens to this character, who's really two characters played by Johansson, is is really kind of profoundly sad and difficult to watch in a lot of ways, and it's not in any kind of conventional female and torment cliche, which is not just a cliche, but sort of a dangerous stereotype, mm-hmm. I think, and really kind of a drag on the culture at this point. But uh, the film is a much more adventurous and, frankly, sadder experience than that. Uh, but it's also why I think it's legitimately so. And I, it doesn't. the film doesn't really necessarily r- succeed or fail based on the quality of the performance, which is good. I just think it's, imagistically, it's really off on its own terrain. It doesn't really remind you of too much else. The guy's Glazer's worked an awful lot in commercials, and miraculously, he hasn't let it mess up his 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 ability to kind of explore a feature length project. So mm-hmm. no, it's a it's a is it a horror film? Technically, not really, but it's it's a lot of it's 
sinister and mm-hmm. really, really creepy in a, in a way that I just can't compare anything to. No, I can't argue with you, partly because I do love the film so much, one of our favorites from last year. My number four is a Spanish horror movie, a Spanish ghost story. It is The Others from Alejandro uh, Amenabar, starring Nicole Kidman. A.O. Scott loves that film. Good, yes. good. Well, you know, he's he's always had pretty good taste, right, Michael? <laughs> Except when he disagrees with you. Yeah, he had moments of good taste, yeah. <laughs> She's a mother of two children, lives in, I guess you'd say, this manor house, remote manor house in England, and it's the aftermath of World War II. Her husband has not come back from the war, presumably dead, and the kids suffer from a rare disease where they can't see sunlight, and then three servants show up, and things kind of go crazy. Not just the three servants who show up, but other uninvited guests, if you will, at the house who appear to be to Nicole Kidman and her kids potentially ghosts. And that that shaky coexistence between the living and the non-living becomes the core of the movie. Must be strong now, children. Metabar said something interesting about the film in an interview. I think for better or worse, I'm trying to do exactly the opposite of what you see in most horror films today. Start with the special effects. In other films, you might be seeing ghosts flying around. It doesn't disturb me. So I tried to work in a more realistic way and play with primary fears and very simple elements, the things I was scared of when I was a child. I tried to adopt the role of a child when I was writing, and I tried to put the audience in that position. Or the sound, for instance. I think nowadays the levels of sound in many mixes are completely unbelievable and insane, so we tried to make a very quiet film and use silence as a way to create suspense. Mm. That's really what I appreciate about this movie so much. He definitely succeeded. That sound design, the silence, is unnerving. And like a movie we both appreciated from last year, The Babadook, it's mostly about the horrors of grief and the way it can completely consume you and the negative effects that can have. Mm -hmm. There's a key line in the movie I alluded to already where we hear... I think it's one of the servants, the main maid, if you will, who says the living and the dead must learn to exist together. Hmm. And as I think about that appearing a couple times in the movie, it's not necessarily she's saying literally sharing the same space, but figuratively speaking, how do the living live with the dead as we tie it back to this notion of grief? And that's really what Kidman's character is dealing with. I also think it's a movie about our capacity for rationalization Hmm. (laughs) because (laughs) You can construct, as she does, an entire world around her and see perfectly how every little piece fits in until it finally unravels so far that she has to accept the reality of what she's seeing. And talk about primary fears and simple elements. The biggest scare for me in the movie is when they look at a book, the (laughs) Book of the Dead. Yes, yes. Which, as the character says, it's macabre. Yes, it is. Yeah, (laughs) it is. The film's got a great central 
reveal that can't be discussed, but mm-hmm. it, it's, uh, it's, and, and I, I'm eager to see it a second time to see how much of the film, which is very well made in, in almost every respect, I think, you know, how much of it succeeds in, in other ways once you know that central reveal that comes around the midpoint or so. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to revisit it, so I wonder yeah. if it does. You mentioned books. Let's talk about it. The Babadook is my number three. The idea here in writer-director Jennifer Kent's horror film, which comes from her short film called Monster, is that you have a mother, played by Essie Davis, terrific performance from an actress we don't know very well here in America. She plays Amelia, who's an elder care worker. Her husband died in a car accident a few years earlier, and her son Samuel has had a difficult life ever since, and they live in a uh, ramshackle old house, and the rooms are painted in a very (laughs) unsettling grayish-blue tone, and the house is essentially begging for trouble, right? And then out of nowhere, this storybook shows up at their doorstep. It's called The Babadook, and the monster in the book is uh, terrorizing a young boy after being allowed inside the boy's house. Now, Samuel, of course, begins seeing this monster for real, and that's kind of that's that that's a starting point. Now, this mm-hmm. is not; these are not necessarily Daisy Fresh ideas. The idea of storybook characters coming to life and and haunting these folks, but Kent, who's really making an incredibly good film debut here, and she's got I think got a great career ahead of her. So good. Uh, it's just it's it's a perfect blend, I think, Adam, of, of character based horror. And as you say, sort of real word grief, because you, we have a grieving widow here and, sure. a, and a son who's like truly anguished in many ways. And yet you have a lot of scare sequences that simply have to deliver. And she really does it without making you feel just sort of beat up or knocked around by either, you know, as, as other people have said, sound designs that just kind of get in your face and your ears too too much. I don't know. It really it, it, It's a very brisk and very fleet-footed horror film, but it, uh, it's it got real people in it, and I'm glad that it got the attention it got. I am as well. Let's give a little bit of attention to a guest expert here, Michael. I did solicit a voicemail from one of our local Chicago critics who sees a lot of horror movies and who has seen a lot of horror movies. I asked Steve Procopi, a.k.a. Capone from Ain't It Cool News, for his pick for the best horror film of the 21st century so far, and this is what he came back with. After much thought and viewing over the years, I've got to say, I've narrowed it down to director Adam Wingard and writer Simon Barrett's film, uh, Your Next, which came out a couple years ago after sort of being on the shelf, uh, inexcusably on the shelf for uh, a couple years. Um, I-, I was really in love with this film because these two guys, these two filmmakers are so aware of genre tropes from just being fans of it that they know exactly when to avoid them and when to embrace them. Um, the, the hardest thing to get right in horror films is not the scares, it's the surprises. It's giving us something we haven't seen before and are, and are not expecting. And um, Your Next is a tightly wound and sometimes very nasty piece of work uh, with a lot of character development, which is something else we don't get a lot in horror films. So we actually care whether someone dies or whether they're in jeopardy. Um, as I said, without compromising the horror elements, the movie does justice to its home invasion story, but still keeps it fresh and unpredictable and, of course, terrifying. Uh, that is my pick. You're next uh, for the best horror film of, two th- of the 2000s so far. 
Thank you, Steve, for that great pick. A film spotting confession had never even heard of your next until I started preparing for this list. But Steve makes a very compelling case. I like what he had to say, Michael, in terms of filmmakers understanding those genre tropes and knowing when to avoid and embrace them. I think that's a dance a lot of horror filmmakers do have to figure out. And what he said, too, about the surprises being just as important, if not more important than the scares. I think that applies to my number three pick, everything Steve said, it is the 2009 Thai West film, The House of the Devil. Michael, you joked off air that I was going to find some way to sneak a movie from 1973, The Exorcist, onto this list. <laughs> I did not come up with a way to break that rule, but I got to have Satan represented somehow. He's, okay? he's, he's the big guy. He is, right? And this film includes a ritual scene where a super gross, super scary creature cuts her arm, pours the blood into a goat skull, then draws occult symbols onto another character using that blood. This is from what, the going clear, the Scientology thing? No? <laughs> well played. Okay, well played. She also forces the character to swallow a couple gallons of it. All of that does freak me out, but I think what really freaks me out is how Ty West draws out the dread and sustains the dread. Those scenes actually end up kind of being a relief because it's been so dreadful. You're waiting for that payoff to finally happen, and I do think that West delivers. Speaking of my last pick, The Others and the capacity for rationalization, you know from the moment this main character, Samantha, hears the job to babysit for Tom Noonan, originally his kids, then he changes the plan on her and makes it, well, actually, his wife's mother. You know that she should get out of there. Listen, it, this is not anything like you're imagining. There's... There's nothing medical that you have to do whatsoever. In fact, you don't have to do much of anything. And I find this all a bit awkward, but you have to understand I have only the best intentions. I've been putting advertisements out for the past two weeks to get someone for tonight, but nobody responds to elderly assistance or home care anymore. So I thought maybe babysitter would get better response. But to be honest, it didn't do much. And like I said on the phone, I only got one other girl. And when I told her the truth, she backed out so I mean I figure it's it's all this horror stories that you, you read in the paper and and see on TV that have scared away girls of your age from these types of opportunities and yeah there's a lot of weirdos out there you're right you're right and I think that's, that's the, the real fear here and what scares me the most as I watch the house of the devil it's not knowing when you should truly be afraid. This character is always saying to herself, get it together, settle down, everything's going to be okay. Even though all these things keep happening that show her that something is definitely off and she should be worried, she keeps calming herself down, saying, no, it's going to be fine, and then it's not fine. And I think we've all been in situations like that where we wonder, okay, is this... Is this going to go somewhere I don't want this to go? And I mean, you're never every, really sure? Every taping of film signing I've had has had an element of that, you know? <laughs> well, hopefully it's not quite as bad as, you know, ending with goat skulls and, and blood, Michael. But hey, the night's young. The night <laughs> is young. You know, it's, is it midnight yet? I don't know. <laughs> it's not. It's no, not. it's a really good film. I, I, I like it a great deal, too. And I think, um, I think you know, I always, we always expound, but I think both of us tend to really seek out and 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 re we respond to horror films that don't necessarily rely on a lot of blood and gore this is different cuz this has got this has got a lot of it but not, it it's it's really shrewdly judged because i think the what i remember is the first act of violence comes very suddenly and it's placed just perfectly in what is a very simple story. That's and, it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's and and yeah. This this is a film that definitely knows 
all its you know precedents, acknowledges them, Halloween, Rosemary's yeah. Baby, you name it. It's there, and it's at the very beginning, too. I knew I was going to have fun with this movie when I saw that old-school 70s font for the title, the freeze frame right. on the title, <laughs> right, right, right. that music, everything about it where the freeze frames happen in time with the music. There was something about the fun Ty West was having that cued me in right away, that this was going to be fun, but also a little bit scary. And we talked about It Follows and whether or not these horror movies, you can read into them larger sort of metaphors. If you want to go there with this film, for me, it's really all about what happens when you compromise yourself, like compromise your integrity or you do something that that you know you really shouldn't be doing. It's not just that it could go off the rails here, but she does this whole thing that she doesn't really want to do for money. She just needs to pay the bills. And she says, "Okay, I'm going to do this thing that I know I shouldn't be all because I'm desperate. And that, that sense of anybody in any walk of life, when you do something for that reason, can something horrible go wrong to you? And, well, you hope that it doesn't go wrong the way this goes wrong. But right. it's a heightened scenario you know, you know in what a horror the most, film. You know what, for me, the most frightening thing that I remember from this film is, and it's it's only been, what, like five years, yeah. I think, five, yeah. six years since mm-hmm. it came out, but there's a, <laughs> it's a great use of the answering machines of the 1980s where the voice is, you know, instructing. It sounds very kind of alien and robotic, like, you know, please leave a message. <laughs> it just makes me think of, like, is this is this some sort of, is this like the twisted stepfather of Siri? Yeah, you know, you know, you know what I mean. It's like it's like the, the early version of Siri. It's like Siri's horrible uncle. I love it. You know, that's the film I want to see. Well, we can make it. All right, someday. <laughs> that brings us to our number two picks for the best horror films of the past fifteen years. Michael, what do you have? All right, this is another uh, genre bender for sure, and people will just you know hoot it right out of there because it's not a horror film, really. But Lars von Trier's Antichrist to me, (laughs) qualifies in many ways. I think I I love it uh, in its sick way, especially for the first hour, and really, I hate to say only, but when the first hour of Antichrist, I think, is is truly a masterwork, and it's it's just a, a unique coal black comedy of a marriage that just isn't going to work out. And that that's how I look at it. I you know Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg play a couple that whose young son dies in this miserable accident um and and this is in the prologue and as part of their grief therapy they do there a it couple, is again. they do a couple of really 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 unfortunate things. They retreat to their cabin in the woods so that the wife can finish her thesis on witchcraft and violence against women throughout the ages, and and the other the other dubious idea is that Defoe, who's a psychotherapist, uh, decides to kind of really press his point and say, "Look, I'm going to be the one to cure you." And he's got there's just enough of a trace of smugness and patronizing sort of authoritarian nonsense in this guy's whole makeup that you just know on some level he's asking for trouble. He's he's going to deserve what happens to. And my God, when Von Trier starts delivering what happens, it's second half is a whole different story. Some of the images are just so outlandishly explicit and painful to watch. Yes, that it's it throws you out of the film and throws you out of I mean out of the theater. I remember people leaving the theater in Cannes, but I guess I just find the first hour so so crafty and gripping and really psychologically astute and Mm -hmm. even if the film eventually goes the way of you can't trust the women which is which is too bad and it reduces the thing to a different kind of stupider horror movie for sure 
And yet, the, I, Adam, I, I got to say this one. I, I will just defend that first hour of Antichrist. To, you know, till till the day I quit talking about movies. That's another one I need to revisit. I don't know if I'm yeah, ready. Yeah. Ready for the pain so, so, of such Antichrist. A, such an easy revisit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think when we talked about that movie on the show, we joked about needing a T-shirt that says "I survived Antichrist." I mean, yeah, it, it's. It's a haul to I get through ke- it. I, I keep waiting for the right holiday, you know, to kind of like have the occasion to see right. it again. And there is no holiday. No. No, there's no holiday. <laughs> well, my number two is a little more straightforward than Antichrist. It is another Spanish horror movie and another Spanish ghost story, The Orphanage. Oh, I love or The Orphanage. El Orfanado, love which it. is more fun to say. Actually, Josh Larson's number one terrifying character from 2012 came from this list, Tomas, the not-so-imaginary friend in this film. Right. And This ghost story is about a woman who returns to the abandoned home she left when she was adopted 30 years before. Her name's Laura, her husband Carlos. They have a great plan to turn the home into a center for special needs children until their seven-year-old son, Simone, goes missing. And he has this imaginary friend, actually has a few imaginary friends, but he just disappears without a trace. And that then starts this whole mystery that unravels with Laura trying to get at the secrets of not only what happened to her son, but maybe what happened to all of the orphans that were originally at this home, the kids she grew up with. And I look back at my notes from this movie when we reviewed it, and I actually said I didn't think it was very scary. I meant it in that context as praise for the way it doesn't rely on cheap scares. Yeah, the shock. Yeah, it's not about those jump-out-of-your-seat moments. The suspense is almost entirely psychological, and... It requires us to fill in certain blanks that we don't really want to fill in. And I love that about this movie. I mean, Geraldine Chaplin shows up as a woman who's hosting a seance. Oh, that's the scene. It's so good. Juan Antonio Bayona, the director, doesn't show us what she's seeing. It's just her take on what we imagine she is seeing. And that, that fear is really palpable in it. Looking back on it, I misspoke, though. I mean, it's legitimately scary. It really is. Yes, it's psychological, but it's really scary. That Tomas character freaks me out. And there's also a sequence where Laura, played wonderfully by Belen Rueda, she tries to contact the spirits of those dead orphans that she grew up with. And they basically play this game of red light, green light. Hmm. It's chilling. Yeah. It's really yeah, that chilling. That takes your breath away. Yeah. At least it does for me. I thought it was interesting, again, looking back at my notes, that my last comment was... With Bayono's direction, I can't wait to see what his next project is. And, of course, that ended up being one of my least favorite movies of a few years ago, The Impossible. Right. This is I the, still have faith. This is the tsunami yeah. picture mm-hmm. Naomi Watts. Naomi and, Watts. Yeah. And uh, Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. Not yeah. a fan. Interesting because all the craftsmanship and technical preoccupation of that film is all about just how literal and bombastic can you make Real world horror, you yes. know this 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 massive tsunami that killed so many people, and and you know how realistically can you render that? And yet, yeah, it's, it, it does it have a, even a tenth of the kind of lingering uh, effectiveness of the orphanage? No, 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 it doesn't. Number one, then, Michael, what's your favorite horror movie? Man, this was tough. This was really tough. This was yeah. a tough assignment. And I know you've talked about this, and I actually tried to pick a different one just to avoid vampire films for some reason, just because it is a type of monster that we've seen so much of that we're all a little weary, but the Swedish version of Let the Right One In, the one that led to the American remake called Let Me In, which is pretty good, but director Thomas Alfredson's original version is just is just amazing. Now, I think when you talk about what scares you, Adam, I, I think 
for me, it's not really like an easy list of like uh, the Mark Harris list of like woods, uh, <laughs> you know, stairwells, whatever. Yeah. But w- one thing I find always wrenching and, and I kind of resent it in movies is any kind of b- severe bullying situation. Maybe it's because I just didn't have much of it in my own life and I had a pretty easygoing childhood. I'm with you. Lovely brother and all the rest of it. But, uh, but you know, this this is a key component in Let the Right One In because this is a severely bullied young boy who's kind of at the center of this story. But every time you have to actually deal with this behavior and its effects in the film, it's taken just seriously enough without being kind of lingering and sadistic in the wrong way about it, that once you start getting this supernatural element and this friendship with this girl who's in fact a vampire, I don't know, it opens up a whole another world and somehow all the vengeance that comes out of this feels not just kind of justified by the story, but emotionally um, in some sick way, you just can't wait for it, you know? True. And, and I think that's a horrifying th- impulse. But why is Let the Right One In good? Simply because it does what you've seen a million times before. You know, when is the vampire going to attack the next victim? Every time this happens, every jump, every every placement in the frame, every time you see somebody crawling up the outside of a building or leaping down from a bridge, or something, it's all a second earlier than you expect and it's handled just masterfully. And, it is. Uh, it's a marvelous film. And yeah. uh, I don't know what lessons could filmmakers take from it. I guess just that you can, if you take the time to figure out how you're going to handle these things visually, then you can you can do almost anything with familiar material. Probably would have made my list if not been near the top, if not for the fact that it recently came up on a top five, that pool scene in particular. Oh, great. At the end is so well-crafted. And I'm with you as well. I like that you bring up the impulse there, Michael, because I remember talking about this on the show, and I didn't read everything about this movie, certainly, or anything that's followed really since that review happened. But not a lot of people that I saw talked about that sort of bloodlust, which, of course, the vampire is a perfect fit with that, where it is about that bullying. It's about that sense of revenge. And as a viewer, you find yourself asking yourself, when are you almost waiting for that blood to spill because right. you think it's justified. Well, and it's, and, it's forcing you to confront that. And so much of popular entertainment uh, in in the non horror genre is all it's completely built on our blood on stoking the mm-hmm. audience's bloodlust. And I, I frankly kind of hate it. I've had it and and I resent it uh, just as a movie goer because it's, it's the easiest thing to to get out of an audience is that impulse if you just simply mistreat or you know grind down the characters in or the audience hard enough then. All you want to do is you're sort of whimpering in your seat, sort of psychologically, you know, in, in you know, subconsciously, and saying, you know, strike back, strike back. Well, you know, this is Mel Gibson's entire directorial career. <laughs> Truly, right. it is. Yeah. And, yeah. And I just, I just think it's, it's an easy, cheap way to go. But if it's done well, uh, you know, the paragon for me would be De Palma's Carry. You know, because I mean, I mean, you know, Sissy Spacek in that film is just enacting Amazing. a revenge yeah. fantasy that is so fully invested and so kind of operatically crazy and, you know, really violent. And, and it's all about bloodlust. And I just loved every second of that. Film. Yeah. My number one is a film that maybe is my one departure from sort of the standard horror movie fare. And I was looking at various lists because we're not the first to think of this sort of review of the past 15 years or so and look at the horror genre. And there were lots of lists that had picks like Under the Skin, which I would say were just a little bit, you even said, is it really quite horror, a but... scary movie, but it does fit in terms of its dread and its kind of creepiness, whether they're movies that don't have any ghosts or monsters or paranormal activity, but they do have a lot of that dread and discomfort. I get it. But I was surprised that I didn't come across any Michael that listed this movie, despite the fact that serial killers 
are horrifying, partly because serial killers actually exist, and the movie is David Fincher's Zodiac. Oh, great pick. One of my favorites of the first 10 so years good. of the century. So good. And I never thought of it in the, hor- in, really? in, in the horror genre. Well, I guess what really crystallized for me is I was thinking about this movie in the context of a few years ago, I remember late at night, flipping channels, couldn't fall asleep or whatever, landed on some A&E special, I think it was A&E, where they were talking about the original Night Stalker. Not Richard Ramirez later, but this violent criminal who, as far as we know, still unapprehended, killed 10 people, sexually assaulted like 50 women in Southern Mm. California between 1979 and 1986. Mm. And they don't know who he is, obviously. They never caught him. But he left a message on a woman's answering machine that the police are sure is this character. Mm. And they play the answering machine message. And it's this psychotic man basically repeating i'm gonna kill you Mm. you talk about being just scared to the core of your being i was watching that and zodiac has a similar effect on me how about just the surreality of that moment when the zodiac killer comes across those two teens who are just hanging out by the lake and he ends up killing those kids it's broad daylight there's something about just the vivid colors and the way fincher realizes it that just takes you back as you see that whole thing unfold Jake Gyllenhaal, when he goes into Charles Fleischer's basement. Oh, it's a great scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Everybody in the theater is on the edge of their seat yeah. during that scene. But the one that I always go back to, Ioni Sky appears as a mother of an infant driving along who ends up picking up, unwittingly, the Zodiac Killer. Right. And here's the best part of me mentioning this, Michael. Right now, our co-producer, Sam Van Halgren, is up really late at night in his dark house. Everyone's asleep. He's trying to put this show together. He's listening to my voice, realizing that he's got to go pull this scene and watch the whole thing so he can find the best piece of audio to embed in the show right here. Nice. I think we just passed a filling station. It was closed. Do you always go around helping people in the night? When I'm done with them, they don't need much help. Shh, okay. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. It's okay, Sam. There's nobody in the house. There's nobody outside your window. You really are safe. I tell you, the most frightening thing about Zodiac, and I love that film. I think it's Fincher's best film. I think it's truly his most, I, I don't hate the word mature, but it's like his most mature work i think and at the time he he gave interviews that said you know look after this i don't think anyone ever should need to make another serial killer movie now ironically the guy went on to make a lot of lesser pulpier you know just lower down the food chain serial killer movies i think like you know the girl with the dragon tattoo i you know gone mm-hmm. girl's very good pulp but it's but so there's something about the that frustration of not solving the case in zodiac where the film is really about Human frustration, inability to kind of provide yeah. themselves Clarity. and the audience yeah, with, a happy, with a kind of a satisfying ending. Mm-hmm. And that film, God, it's got nerves of steel. It, it just does. won't give the audience what it wants. Well, Zodiac is my number one horror movie of the 21st century. Michael, 
let's get to a few honorable mentions. What were some of those movies that were really tough for you to leave off? I mean, really tough. And some of the ones that don't quite fit the standard horror genre, I would include the two David Lynch films, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. I think both of them have moments that are truly sinister and nightmarish. Uh, not really horror films, but I really love 28 Weeks Later, the I sequel to 20, 28 Days. I think 28 Weeks is actually, it's politically really a student kind of of the moment. Uh, this is why you're my favorite film spotting guest host, Michael. Oh, yeah. Because we share, we share the same love thing. for 28 Weeks Later. We don't need, we, so good. We don't need two don't of us here. Else. We don't no. need two of We don't even need two of us here. Um <laughs> I really love The Descent in terms of uh, you know, spelunking for uh, humanoid demons. I, I think that's that, that's mm-hmm. a subgenre, but it's a can't great, watch it again. My claustrophobia. Really good film. I'm not claustrophobic. I I, I enjoy tight spaces. It's fine. <laughs> um, and then there's a few I'll just close out with it that I would consider kind of you know not minor, but but they're just sort of less ad- ambitious. But I really love Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. I do too. I really love Slither. I really love The Crazies, the remake of the Romero film. And Bong Joon-ho's The Host is technically a monster movie, but to me it's next door to horror, and it's got serious, serious style and wit, and uh, not enough people know it. I mean, if they haven't seen The Host, yeah. they should see it. I mean, the guy's going on amazing work. He did, most recently, he did Snowpiercer, which was a big success, and that's another one that doesn't really fit easily in any kind of simple science right. fiction genre, but The Host, it's monster movie enough for me, horror movie enough for me, and I love it. Yeah, it's a good film, and you covered a lot of the ones I wanted to get to. Let the Right One In, obviously, made your list. The Babadook made your list. 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later, both highly considered by me, and I just couldn't have three Spanish ghost stories on my list, but I considered a movie I finally just caught up with this past weekend, Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Hmm, never seen it. Really good. Uh, really so I'm overdue. There you go. And The Mist, another one I like a lot, and Drag Me to Hell. You mentioned the Raimi film, The Loved Ones, a recent movie nobody saw that is really good. Kind of a throwback horror movie. Guy trapped in a basement by the girl that wants to take him to prom. You know, everybody's nightmare, really. So, <laughs> good film. And I mentioned a few of those movies or how I avoided movies that maybe didn't fit that category whether they were simply not scary to me or just didn't feel like horror movies. But if you do want to talk about just being terrified by certain situations that characters find themselves in, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, the Romanian <laughs> uh, film from Christian Munju, and recently IndieWire, in their Critic Wire survey, they asked people, in honor of It Follows, what is the best horror movie since 2000? And Jordan Hoffman said, Beyond the Hills, another Romanian film from Christian oh Munju. <laughs> well, it's got an exorcism. It does have and, and an exorcism. I almost put it on my list for yeah, that reason. Yeah, and it's and it's certainly the most plausible, realistic exorcism. You don't have to, you, you know, it's the one for the secular humanists, you know what I mean? <laughs> there it is. You don't need to be a believer to be frightened by it. Yeah. All right. Those are, again, our top five horror movies since 2000. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312 264 0744 or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. Michael is found at Phillips Tribune. You can also get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at our website, Filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of show archives and take part in the fourth round of Film Spotting Madness. Only four actors remain, and only one of them will survive to act another day. Again, filmspotting.net. Hey, high stakes here on Michael. You gotta play. You gotta play hard. Life or death, baby. Or go home. 
out in limited release this weekend, Ned Rifle. This is the latest movie from Hal Hartley. Aubrey Plaza is in it, and Hartley regulars Parker Posey and Martin Donovan, part of the Grimm family trilogy, including 2006's Faye Grimm and 1997's Henry Fool. At the Gene Siskel Film Center, Human Capital, this is an Italian film. I want to say, Michael, it was up for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar, or is that not true? Don't know. You don't know? Don't know. Have you seen it? No. I have, and I can recommend it. You've seen it? Yeah, I have. You've seen a film I haven't seen? Can you believe it? I'm leaving. Stop the show. I'm leaving. Stop the show. Human Capital is recommended if you get a chance to see it. At the Music Box, White God, a movie from Hungary, possibly a parable about European race relations, except it has dogs. Have you seen I White have God? seen it. I've seen it. Recommended? Uh, I liked it much less than everybody else I can. Okay. But it, it is not just possibly a parable about European relations and, and immigration <laughs> issues with, with dogs. dogs. It, it is. is. Okay. It really is. The Salt of the Earth, it's a new documentary from Vim Vendors. And While We're Young, the latest film from Noah Baumbach with Ben Stiller, Naomi Watts, and Adam Driver. Have not seen it yet. It is going to come up at some point here on the show. Two weeks, I think, we're going to talk about While We're Young. Out in wide release, James Wan's Furious 7. And next week on the show, Josh will be back. Michael is not going to partake in any of this tomfoolery Mm-mm. as we review Furious 7 and share our top five fast and furious moments. I think we're ready. We're ready to do it. Right. It's going to be fun. Uh, yeah, all, of, all of mine. It's going to uh, be fast and furious. It's, it's Michelle Rodriguez uh, or, you know no, what? or nothing. She's, she's really good in that series. Yeah. And she's really good in Furious 7. That's a little bit of a spoiler. All right. There you go. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Ben Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our featured artist this week was Laura Marling from her new album, Short Movie. More information at lauramarling.com. Michael, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was fun and only slightly scary. Yeah, it was, it was scary in the best way. Yes. Thanks, Where can Adam. people find more of your work? Uh, chicagotribune.com slash movies. And, Anything uh, you know, exciting coming up? Facebook, you know, Twitter, it's all we're, all, we're talking all over the place. At Phillips Tribune, again, you can find him there. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.